Measuring in at 184 centimeters and 112 centimeters high, that's wide and high, tucked behind a door in a French home lay a painting. The family who owned the home didn't think really anything of the painting. They thought maybe it was a copy. They thought maybe it was just a, a reproduction, a bit of decoration, definitely not worth very much. The brush strokes were detailed, the composition pleasing, but worth anything, probably not. After all, it had been in the family since, 1990, since the 1900s, and nobody had thought it worth anything until this point. Until the owners, the curious got the better of the owners, and they thought, we're going to send this off for expert verification. And after a short wait, they learned that it was actually painted by an artist called Bruegel the Younger. Have you got just the first slide? Is that right? Thank you. Here it is. Anyone recognize that painting? Very famous. Any, any guesses? You recognize it. Any guesses at how much that painting was valued at subsequently? Sorry? Oh, flip, that's quite high. No, <laughs> you just ruined my whole point. No, <laughs> 713,000 pounds. It's amazing, isn't it? A painting that was once tucked behind a door was suddenly worth a fortune. And all because it carried the signature as well as with it the reputation and the renown of the painter. 713,000 pounds. Pounds. We love an underdog story, don't we? We love it when, when the protagonist, against all the odds, comes back to save the day. And it's like there's something within us that our heart goes, yes! Rags to riches, poor Peter Prince. At our core, we all seem to have a God-given desire for things to be right, for them to be fair, and then for them to be just, for value to be assigned where value is due, and for dignity to be restored. So I wonder, if you have your Bibles, well done. If you don't, just listen up. But we're going to look at Genesis 1, verse 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Hands up, who feels like a masterpiece this evening? Come on, we're going to throw our hands up. You are a masterpiece. Yes, I'm loving that. That's great. That's so good. Because you should. You are not just a collection of well put together cells. There has never been anyone like you. There is no one like you. And there will never be anybody like you in the future. You are unique. And so I hope that you are feeling pretty good about yourselves. Some nods of approval over there. Thumb oh, that's thumbs up. We would probably all have subscribed to this idea of intrinsic value. That everything and everyone has worth and dignity. But what Genesis 1 is saying is, is slightly different. What Genesis 1 is saying is that we're not only valuable for that which is in ourselves, but we are valuable because of who God is. 
We each carry the uh, imago dei, the image of God, an extrinsic value and dignity that comes beyond, from beyond ourselves. We carry the glory and the honor of the painter. Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put thing, all things under his feet. That's cool, isn't it? Whether you feel it or not, God has given each of us his own value and worth in his image. That is the generous, loving, wonderful God that we come to worship this evening. And you may be going, great, this is all well and good. I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. But what is the point? Okay, we'll get there. Here's where it bites. Think for a moment when someone let you down. I wonder, can you think of a moment recently where somebody's let you down? Perhaps at work, a colleague failed to provide you an important document on time and it made you miss your deadline. And you painfully had to report to your line manager and your line manager wasn't interested in the reasons as to why you were late. They just saw the missed business opportunity. They saw the missed finance and income. And so you leave that meeting just feeling frustrated and angry. And you go to your colleague and, you, and you're not feeling great about them, right? And so you say, you confront them and you say, well, what, what's going on? How come? And you soon find out that they didn't get it to you because they overslept. The subsequent conversation doesn't go very well. You go from angry to fuming. And you use language like, I can't believe you did that. How stupid are you? You are so lazy. In fact, you are just bad. I'm sure none of us would speak like that, just to say. But I wonder if you picked up on what happened in the interaction. The response was not, you have made bad decisions but you are a bad person. Because the reality of the fact is that when we fail to productively contribute to the shared success of a community like a workplace or even society in general, then we can start, when we fail, we can start to build our identity around words of shame instead of words of life. We can be robbed of that intrinsic dignity in small in subtle ways and in a culture that is often defined by success being the most important thing what happens when we fail what happens when we fail we all fail right what happens when we fail well for the last few weeks we've been dancing around acts 2 in the hope of trying to find out more about who we are to be as a community what, how, what it's to look like to be Christ-centered, to be Christ-like in our relationships, in our worship, in who we are as individuals, in our workplace, um, and to follow his way, hodos, the way, journey, um, road. And what we find in Acts 2 is a group of people who've become really the benchmark for the Christian community. Let's just read that again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread 
and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love that. Everything in common. Everything in common. I don't think it's talking about their political views, by the way. They probably weren't all in favor of the three-school model. I was really hoping John Gollop was going to be here this evening. They probably wouldn't have all agreed as to whether they should remain in the EU even. And heaven forbid, some of them probably, if they were here today, did not in fact, or did in fact want the energy from waste plant. Community, we all know community, this community is no different. It wasn't utopian, it wasn't idealist, it wasn't some kind of hippie commune. We all know that to live in community is hard and it takes effort. Does anyone find here community easy? One at the back. Oh gosh, seeing all the extroverts throw their hands up, it's just Phil at the back. <laughs> in my opinion, real community takes three things. Intentionality, sacrifice, and a whole lot of forgiveness. We hurt each other, we let each other down, we are different. Revelation talks about every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's how it's meant to be. The beautiful and baffling nature of the impossible community that is the church. What I think this early church realized is that in the sharing of their possessions, they weren't just sharing their possessions. They were actually sharing their dignity. Where there was need amongst them, they made sure that through the sharing of their valuables, all people knew that they were valued. Does that make sense? Through the sharing of their valuables, all people knew that they themselves were valuable. And when we look at this early church, we find a people who looked past their failures and differences to see God's image stamped upon the individual, his extrinsic value scribbled in the signature of their lives. A signature that says no matter your background, no matter your past, no matter your history, in an image-bearing community, all are a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece. Now, this isn't just to make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside that we talk about community being like this, because it has purpose. Joseph Hellerman, in an article in Christianity Today, said, this is way back in 2010, he said, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to fellow Humans. The church community was then and still is today one of God's greatest strategic um, ways of growing you into relationship with him, yeah, into relationship with one another as well. 
If your goal is to be made more like Christ, then you cannot avoid community. I've met so many people who've said, I, I, I love God, but I don't like the church. I can't be in the church. And I get that. We hurt each other. But if we are to be formed into the bride of Christ, then we must be together in the, as the bride of Christ. And it's my experience that authentically and honestly walking with another person has been the times in my life where I have grown the most. The biggest catalyst in my life for growing in relationship with God has been seeing somebody else further ahead of me and walking with them. I can think of a couple of people in my life who've challenged me and drastically shaped my faith, not through big words or, or, or bold prophecy, as, as important and as powerful as those are, but through the simple and consistent sharing of their time, of their energy, and of their love, and in fact, in some instances, where we've been in need of their possessions. And there's just a beautiful example of this in Acts 9. We read it just, just before about Saul in Damascus. Well, in Acts 8, we find a man called Saul who made it his personal mission to destroy the church. He hated Christians. He really, really hated Christians. Straight on the heels of Stephen being stoned after probably one of the most epic monologues that you can read, um, and the, his friends drag him off to go get buried and the tears are rolling down their faces. And even, before, um, even while the tears are still on their faces, Saul launches his attack on the church. And he, he drags men and women who are professed to be Christians, following little Christ, following Jesus, and he throws them into prison. This guy, Saul, is bad news. But on his way to Damascus... Saul has this encounter with God that's described as a flash of light and an audible voice. It's an audible voice because we know that the others around him can hear this voice, but they can't see God speaking. And Saul goes blind. Long story short, Saul does a 180 on his views against the church and persecuting the church. And he, facts, he in fact goes on to start loving God and professing God's name and, to, and, and just speaking of the gospel. He regains his sight and he begins his journey to becoming one of the fathers of the faith that we know as Paul. And this is where I want to pick it up again. When he, that's Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I wonder if you picked up what was going on with the disciples. I think it's really interesting. Because they reduced Paul to the sum of his past sin. They saw someone to be fearful of. They saw someone to be distrusting of. They saw someone to keep our arm's length and say, no, no, sorry, you're not one of us. But it took Barnabas um, to see the image of God in Paul. 
Barnabas advocates for Paul to the other disciples and Paul is accepted into that community. He's given a new hope and a new future and Barnabas then invites Paul to travel with him. And it's almost like he says, he's like, he's like come with me, Paul. I'll show you the ropes. It's right. We'll do this together. I know you're going to mess it up. I know your life is messy. I know people hate you, but we'll do this together. We'll walk strongly. Guys, he's with me. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Did you know that? It's his nickname. So good. I think it takes a godly man or woman to look through the sin to look through the mess, the hurt, the anger, the disagreement, and through it all to see the image of God in a person. I find that so hard. I'm just being totally honest with you. I find that so hard. Don't get me wrong. I think, I just want to put a disclaimer on this because I think we have to exercise wisdom. There are some instances where it would be harmful for us to carry on walking closely with another person. Sometimes reconciliation is not always the most appropriate route. But there might be somebody else who is better suited to walk closely with that person. But most of the time, in our community, we're talking about relational breakdown. The sad reality is that when unity breaks down in a community like ours, then we can often reduce one another's value to a fraction of the dignity that God has placed onto each one of us. John, our vicar. Does anyone remember that guy? Yeah, you remember that guy? Well, he's back soon, so I can say what I want now. Oh, he might be listening. Who knows? Anyway. He's on sabbatical, they're back soon. He said this to me as I first started at Trinity. Hopefully it's going to come from the screen. Oh no, missed that one. There you go, lovely. People come to church for a multitude of reasons, but they stay because of relationships. Meaningful relationships with others that lead to a meaningful relationship with God. That is so good, isn't it? And so for the next couple of minutes, all I want to do is to just give us some tools. Because we are different. We are all made differently and we need to learn how to handle our difference well. When we are different, there is going to be conflict. Where there is community, there is conflict. So we have to learn how to navigate that well. We're made of the image of God, but we've got to make sure that we treat each other with the same um, assigning of value onto one another that God has placed onto all of us. So here's a few tools. And I've pieced these together from Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Relationships, as well as some stuff from R.T. Kendall. So hopefully the stock is pretty good. It's EHD. Um, hopefully the stock is pretty good. When we are hurt or we feel like someone has robbed us of dignity, I want to encourage you not to gossip. Don't go to every other person except the person you're struggling with. Go to them. Don't mind read. The enemy loves this one. Try not to imagine what the person or others are thinking about you. Also, don't ignore your hurt. Go to your brother and sister and lovingly confront 
perhaps with a trusted third party, neutral to the situation, and remind yourself in that interaction that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And then this one is a massive one, I think. Don't be accusational or derogatory in your confrontation. It's amazing the difference that language makes in a situation. I think the ideal, and this has been a bit of a game changer for me, the ideal is to use language that re-establishes your boundaries and your dignity without hitting back at the other person. Re-establish your boundaries and your dignity without hitting back at the other person. Perhaps using a conversation starter like, I'm puzzled why you said dot, 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 and then wait. Wait for them to done, uh, be done speaking and practice active listening. This is something that I've had to really work on in my, in my marriage because I'm, I'm good at talking, not very good at listening. So practice active listening. When the other person talks, try then to repeat back what they have said to you to show that you have listened. And then when you're, they're done speaking, ask them to do the same when you talk. Practice forgiveness. And I've said practice forgiveness because I recognize that actually for some of us, the, the act of forgiveness is a daily decision that is for some of us a kind of a small thing and for others a massive thing. But we've got to try and follow the example of our Savior and practice forgiveness and reconcile if appropriate. Like I've said, sometimes it just may not be appropriate. When we have caused hurt, I hope, this is, I hope this is helpful. I'm just recognizing that we may be going, I'm not, I'm not in a conflict right now. And that, that's good. That's great. That's amazing. I can guarantee there will be a point in your life where you are in conflict with somebody else. And, and if it's in the church community, we have to learn how to navigate this well. So when you have caused hurt, don't try to give excuse. Your excuses don't matter. Don't hide. Own it. Learn from it. Apologize quickly, but apologize meaningfully. If you're anything like me, I want to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but do I mean that? Because if we want to grow as followers of Jesus, then we have to get used to the pain of increased self-awareness when it comes to our failures. If we want to learn how the Spirit's going to form us and sanctify us and shape us, then we can only do that if we know the depths of our sin. We only love God to the extent that we know the depths of our sin and his ability to redeem us and forgive us despite them and through them. Amen? So let that awareness spur you on towards greater repentance and greater uh, acknowledgement of Jesus' scandalous grace and love for you. Perhaps you're here this evening feeling anything but a masterpiece. Maybe you feel like you're the sum of your past mistakes or doomed to repeat scripts in your mind spoken over you by your family of origin or perhaps even a past church community. Never good enough. Well, Jesus is in the business of giving value to those that the world has turned his back on. 
the blind man who carried the cultural shame of his family's sin, rejected by his family, his community, and his religious leaders, Jesus welcomed him. The woman at the well who had to go in the heat of the day when no one else was around to avoid the stares and the shame because of her multiple partners, she leaves that encounter with Jesus dancing and running to tell others about him. We saw that, didn't we, when we watched a little bit of The Chosen a little while ago. Simon the Zealot, an insurgent, working against the murderous Roman regime, he goes on to become a disciple of Jesus, to find a path of humility and patience and peace. And then there's the prostitute who poured out oil on the feet of Jesus as the only true sign of devotion she could give. And the religious leaders who stood by said to Jesus, or about Jesus, does he not know who she is? Does he not know who she is? And Jesus replies with seven words, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And the question I want to ask you this evening is do you want to experience God's peace? It's a simple question. Do you want to experience God's peace? For the rest of us, I believe that Jesus is calling us to be a community that restores dignity, that, re- that assigns value where value is due, that steps into the gap that society has left and to advocate for the value of every person made in the image of God. And that's not going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to cause us to zig when the world zags. I like that expression. But it will be beautiful. And it will be through that way that God builds us both in number, but also in depth of relationship with one another and with him. Band, can I get you guys up? Thank you. So in a moment, we're going to have some prayer. And, and what I'd love to encourage you to do is to come forward for prayer. I know it's kind of like, you might be thinking, well, I can pray from where I am now. I can pray from where I'm sat or where I'm stood. But I encourage you to come and get prayer from somebody else. We, we come together to be together and we walk through things together. And so I just encourage you to come and let somebody into your walk, to let somebody into that place where you're at, what you're struggling with, and come and help them pray blessings over you. If you'd like to be a person who advocates for the dignity of others, I would love to invite you to come and get prayer to my left. I think that God is raising up some people in this room who are going to be radical assigners of dignity. Radical sons and daughters of encouragement who step in the gap, who are motivated by the injustice they see around them and the lack of support that they see around them and who are motivated towards being Christ-like to everybody in here, yes, but out those doors as well. And likewise, if you feel like anything but a masterpiece, then I would just please encourage you to come and get prayer. We'd love to just bless you. We'd love to pray for you.